and welcome back to the Game Pit. This is episode 51 and the third in our series of Essen 2015 specials. Yes, indeed. We are on a treasure hunt again for upcoming Essen releases. My name's Ronan, over there is Sean, and in these treasure hunt episodes we look at 12 games which are coming up, and as it was described to me this week, we guess about games. We look at what information's out so far, we haven't played these games, it's not fully formed opinions, but it's just what we think when we're going to turn up to the Essen Spiel Fair and what the impressions these games have given us before we go. And Sean, how do we divide them into the good or the bad? Well, right up, we look from afar, as you said, and quite rightly, we actually do have a good old guess of what we're going to like and what we're not going to like. And if we like it, we determine it's a treasure. If we don't like it, we say it's going to be a trap for us. So when we're in Essen, we're going to hope to give you some very short, quick episodes each evening to just tell you what we've been playing. And then afterwards, we're going to look to wrap up. And during those during and after Essen episodes, we're going to look to go back over a few of these games and give you real opinions on them rather than just very excited guessing. And of course, Ryan, you are going to be on the Dice Tower stand. Very exciting and very jealous because I'm flying back. And you're going to be on the Saturday, I believe, about 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock and if any of you want to come and play some games with myself and Ronan then we're going to be at the Hotel Bredney which is a short drive or a 10-15 minute stroll from the Mesa where the Essen Fair is held and we'll be in the gaming room there so if you want to come along and just shoot the breeze and play a few games with us you're more than welcome. That's right yeah so Friday evening at Hotel Bredney or Saturday noon at the Dice Tower booth. It'd be great to see you. I've definitely roped Puria in to come along and hold my hand there. And if I find any more of our contributors, I will ask them to join me too. So we'll have a right game pit hoolie for an hour or two. Brilliant. And since we've mentioned the Dice Tower, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network, where you can go to find gaming podcasts of the very highest calibre. We're also proud members of 2d6.org, where you can go to find written audio and visual gaming goodness. Okay, I'm going to lead us off now with a game that comes from Portal Games, and it's called Rattle, Battle and Grab the Loot. It is designed, like most of Portal Games, by Ignacy Trezorjek, about 18 different ways that we've said his name already in these episodes. It is two to five players with a suggested time frame of about 45 to 60 minutes. And quite simply, it's a dice game with pirates. Players are pirate captains looking to do a range of actions, including raiding merchant ships and generally pimping out their ship with upgrades and crew. So the general gist of the game is that you will be going on quests and each quest has differing conditions and they make up a scenario. Before and after the quest, players will have the opportunity to add sails, add holds, cannons to their ships and these are going to help them on these quests. The quest generally goes something like this. You take a bunch of non-player ships and each captain commits all, some or no ships to the quest. The ships are represented by dice. I should mention this because it's quite important. The dice are then dropped into a customised box lid. So it's not the Odyssey box lid where they've just thrown a box lid in between the game. This is actually designed to be part of the game. 
Didn't you promise to be nice? Sorry, I did, didn't I? And you can add further tiles to the box to make up islands and other sorts of things, monsters and just other obstacles in the way of, of this sea space that the box represents. And then money and loot are scored essentially by where the dice land in conjunction with the non-player dice and any other targets that there might be. Sails can be used to move your ships. Cannons can attack other ships and the holds store more loot. In addition to buying the ship upgrades, which also include unique upgrades, can players can hire sailors, which represent basically bonus actions and scoring. They can also earn money and buy victory points. So, it's a very quick run-through of Rattle Battle Grab the Loot Ronin. Well, Rattle Battle, the components and the artwork grabbed me, Sean. They look absolutely top-notch, top-of-the-line in board gaming component quality. I think it's probably, from afar, the nicest game and the game that looks to have the highest quality of components in the whole of Essen this year. And I probably take that back after i've been to the fair but it really does look amazing ronan we complained at portal after the first time we'd been and we podcasted to say the space just wasn't big enough we couldn't get in to play their games they've upgraded they've got a bigger space and with a game looking this good i expect rattle battle grab the loot banners to be everywhere i expect this to be a big presence yeah, just to go into the components, even your ships can be customised, and I'm not just saying you just drop a token on them, they split in half to add the holds in, you put the sails on top of them, the cannons fit onto them, dice are all customised with individual engravings on them, yeah, really, really striking, and as I said in my intro, the lid, the lid is part of the game and not just a makey-uppy part of the game. It's been designed with a grid and a sea space and even what seems to be some sort of little turn guide down in the corner. So they've definitely thought about how this game is going to look. Even the individual ships, Sean, the starter ships are all different. They've got different prowls and different kills and they look different. And fantastically for me in an all-female house... Lots of female captains. Portal always do this with their games. They give you the option of many female characters, not just one throwaway one that my two daughters have to fight over. Yeah, they do. I think in Robinson Crusoe, all the characters were reversible so that there was a male and a female side and they've continued on from there. So it's definitely one that's highly recognised in this household as well. My wife is a big fan of Portal. Not hard to do, is it? It's not hard to do. Come on. So, Ronan, we've talked about the look of the game. There's a lot of talk among those who have played it about how the game actually plays out and that there might be a lot of luck. What say you? Well, shall we go on a positive spin to start with, Sean? Off you go. Lots of variety, yeah? Oh, yeah. Every game's going to be different. You get a couple of scenarios in the game itself, but those scenarios just tell you what level cards you're drawing for each of the five different turns. And they come from a big deck of cards, and each of the cards have got different things on them, so every single play is going to be different. So that's good. The variety is fantastic. I think where it pushes away from the variety into a lack of control are things like when you go into port to spend your money to upgrade, when you buy a member of crew, you just draw the top card. And whatever that is, you get it. And when you go for different upgrades, you just draw the top card. And whatever that is, that's what you get. You can't actually build a ship. You just go and hand over your money and take whatever you're given. And that, I think, takes it away from, like I say, variety into random. 
See, I was thinking more about the dice drop, but I'm going to go back to your point about there being scenarios in the game. Portal are famed, especially Ignacy Treasure Check, famed for these storylines, and every game has a story and an arc. Do you think this one is going to have an actual story, or do you think it's crowbarred because that's his shtick, that's what he does? Well, I think you have led me into one of the major points I'm going to make about the game. We have expectations because it's from Portal. We have expectations because it's from Ignacy. And I think the problem people are having with this game is that you go in with certain expectations. And when you encounter it, you are not encountering it on its own terms. He is saying quite clearly this is a luck-based family, chuck the dice in the box, have a laugh kind of a game. And we expect more. I don't know how much of the issue people have with this game is with the game itself or with the fact it's come from Portal and Ignacy and therefore they're demanding more and their expectations are being let down. I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. When I first looked at it, I thought, now, where's it going to change? Where's it going to turn into an Ignacy game? Yeah, he said it's luck-based and it is a dice game, so there's always going to be luck. And as Ronan said, there's even more random with the card draw. But I was waiting for it and it never really came. You know what? Yeah, you can control this and you can control that. The dice drop is completely random you drop the dice out of your hand straight down into the box whichever way they bounce if they bounce kindly for you then happy days if they don't bounce so kindly there are slight things you can do to mitigate i.e the sales but yeah it's a dice game and i could be wrong of me to say i like things like dice city and games like that and then say no i don't like this as you hit the nail on the head ronan i was expecting a little bit more from ignacy and portal it's seems to me that what he set out to do is make a big bold brassy family game which jumps off the table which shouts fun which is for in my head this is for a family with older children 9 10 11 whatever that might be who aren't that into games who don't want to do deck building and don't want to do worker placement but are okay to, to have that shared time around the table this is perfect for them. And it's just not what we expect. Even if it is a family game, I think we thought it would be sort of for gamer kids, you know. And this doesn't seem that way to me. This seems like a mass market game. In fact, I think if this did make it to mass market, it could be a huge, huge hit. Because there's enough there for people to have fun and draw a card and go, oh, I got this or oh, I got that. And when you're not a gamer, you enjoy that. You like that luck and that chance. And then you drop the dice in there and they all look fantastic. And you've got a little bit of control with your sales. For me, we're the wrong market for the game. So, Ronan, it's a difficult one because you've actually been quite positive about this game. But for you, is it a treasure or a trap? That's a good point. <laughs> I have been quite positive because I think that people have been quite negative about it coming out of Gen Con and I think I really want to make it clear that if you're going in there to try and drop your expectations for the game now in terms of myself I mean it kind of rings alarm bells that already on Board Game Geek there are variants for more control simple as simple as when you buy something you draw three and keep one just to give us gamers that, that bit more of a feeling that I, I have more control of my destiny when it comes to whether I'd like to purchase Rattle Battle Grab the Loot, really does it fit in with my family? 
am I going to play it with them? Now, I've got one eager gamer daughter and the other one who's more reluctant. She'll play games with us, but she's more likely to play child games and what have you. And she doesn't really want to get into to more deep games like Carcassonne. She doesn't mind. So then it's quite an expensive unit, you know, 60 euro. And don't get me wrong, it's well worth it in terms of components. But then are my family going to love it? And it comes to as simple as I don't think they're going to love the pirate theme. So, you know, I'm actually, I'm really happy to see a game which I think fits that market perfectly for the non-gamer kids, but it's not going to fit in my house. So, treasure for what he's trying to do, but a personal trap to me. Yeah, I can only really echo all your sentiments there. It's something that I think looks amazing. I would almost have it, almost have it in my collection, just for the way it looks. I think it looks that amazing. It would almost be an ornament, though, and I think that would be a shame to to waste it as an ornament, something pretty to look at. I don't think I would play it very often, and again, it's a personal trap, but I think it could be a lot of fun, so it's probably a treasure for most. And that is Rattle Battle Grab the Loot from Portal Games. So, the second game we're going to cover is moving on from deeply thematic fun game from Portal to a game by Spielworks, who, if you know anything about the publisher, you know this is likely to be a deep, thinky Euro. And it is. It's called Deluvia Project. It's a name that's a hangover from original theme of flooding, but the theme has somewhat changed now. It's from Alexandra Garcia, who hasn't designed anything else that's been ranked. And if Spielworks is not immediately familiar to you, they're original publisher of La Granca, Arkwright, Colon Colony, Deep Euro Games. It's 120 minutes advertised playing time, two to four players, and in it, players are collaboratively, although it's not a cooperative game, it's competitive, but collaboratively building the first city in the sky. The earth, the land itself, is becoming too difficult for us to live on anymore, so we're having to look for alternative living arrangements. The name Deluvia Project comes from, it was originally going to be a city under the sea, but now it's a city in the sky, a cloud city. And over seven turns, you can be buying tiles to add to the city, placing them within this city around the propellers that keep it up, and players are going to attempt to attract the most people to the city. At the end of the game, whoever's attracted the most people is going to win. So how does it work? First of all, in each turn, you're going to be purchasing market tiles. It's quite an interesting little mechanism. The first player takes their zeppelin and places it at top or bottom or left or right of either a column or a row pointing down or towards the middle basically and that reserves that column or row for them and they're then going to buy up to four tiles from that column or row it's a four by four grid and they're going to pay one for the tile nearest their zeppelin two three four moving away from them and they can buy as many of them as they want the turn order obviously is going to be very important on there interesting little twist in the last turn there's no more tiles laid out because in lots of games you've got tiles to buy you can add to the city but in this it's kind of pointless at the end there's actually action spaces on the board and you can purchase them instead which they've put a lot of thought into the game from the looks of this then you're going to use workers to select actions and in the actions you're going to be able to collect the resources which you're going to use to build the buildings which you just bought in the market phase you're going to be able to reserve plots of land in the city or plots of cloud if you like to be able to build these buildings later on there's kind of a, a mini blockus going on with that in terms of reserving areas of the city because when you build, you build next to the centre propeller and then you must build out from there. You must always build adjacent to the buildings you've already placed. Another thing you can do, however, is to pay and build another propeller in a different area and that gives you a different space to start from. So although the blockers blocking each other thing is going on, there are other ways to buy your way out of trouble. 
You can play gardens, which you then give adjacent buildings an endgame bonus. Another interesting thing about the buildings is that some of them have multiple effects during the game, and when you build it, you put your cube on one sector of the building. It can be up to four spaces big, and that's the sector that will affect you ongoing in the game. Well, one of the actions you can take is to move cubes on your own building. So something that's beneficial towards the beginning, you might want to swap that across to the other side of the tile and say, no, I'll take the secondary power now. You can do that. You can adjust what you're doing on the fly. Each turn, you're going to be attempting to collect income, and every time you hit 10 points, you're going to look to see how many buildings you've added to the city, how many people those buildings attract, and then you're going to attract those people in. And over the seven turns, you score points to attract people, score points to attract people, build up this cloud city and very Euro, using resources to build the buildings. Sean, deliver your project. It's another one, Ronan. It's another one I had skipped on past and you brought to my attention. And now I'm quite interested in it. So, the first thing that really caught my eye was that market mechanic. I think that's going to lead to some interesting choices. It's going to lead to a lot of blocking and to and fro in with just that one aspect of the game. That's, that's really small. And I like how the market changes each round. And that's going to keep people on their toes. Yeah, there's that sort of brinksmanship whereby... If I think you want a particular tile, I might place on the column that intersects with that tile. And you've got to think, oh, do I risk going on there to chase that tile? Or is there a good possibility they're going to nick it away from me beforehand? I definitely think that that is a fantastic mechanism. And probably the most innovative mechanism within the game. Because a lot of it is work placement, tile placement, resources. Okay, that's all cool. How you get those tiles and what bonuses they give you going on, I think probably that's the key to the interest, Sean. Absolutely. And there is a lot going on. You've got that market, which is almost a game within itself. You've got action selection going on. You've got a plan. You've got to purchase buildings. You've got to gather resources. There's so much going on. But I didn't feel overwhelmed by the rule book. The rule book was was quite straightforward and it made me feel like the game is going to be understandable and make sense. I did like the rule book. I think the rule book did make a lot of sense. However, I have got an issue with the components in terms of seeing what's going to go on in the game. Now, you've got a pretty cool theme. Whether it's an underwater city or whether it's a cloud city you're building, I like the idea of it and attracting the people in. They haven't pushed that theme very well within the game. The tiles, the buildings don't have names. They've just got icons. This is what they can do. The resources don't even have names. They are literally called black cubes, purple cubes. I think the theme of the delivery project is going to bring people in, but there's no attempt to take that onwards into the play experience. Yeah, no, I can see that. It's quite odd hearing you being the one that's whinging about the theme and me, me being interested in the mechanics. <laughs> it is odd especially, and I can't believe you haven't mentioned this, the game is all grey and white. On the rule book, and that's the only place that I found, that Ronan probably has found it some obscure place, he's very good at digging up these little pictures and rule books and such, but I could only find a picture of the board and the components in the rule book itself, everything else was prototype. And I actually quite like the art, I think it's, it's quirky, but it's something... I'm going to have to see in the flesh to make 
up my mind if I actually like it. But yeah, he's very quirky, and I can see people loving it or hating it. But at the moment, I quite like it for some bizarre reason. I like the art style. I don't like how clear the information you need to see is. I don't like that it's all a sea of washed out colours and it's all iconography and it doesn't shout to me, oh look I just built a cloud processing plant or air filter. But is that going to make it easier because your actual worker placement in ter- terms of the cubes that you're placing down to stake your claim for land and your actual workers themselves, they are like vivid primary colours. So are they not going to just stand out so you can instantly see who controls what area? Maybe. <laughs> I, can see, I, mean, I can see what you're saying, that you don't want to come overwhelmed, but the tar- they're so boring looking. <laughs> oh, they are, though. They're just grey and white and different types of grey and white iconography. I don't understand why on the box cover the clouds are green. Yeah, but but the city you're building looks like clouds. When I first looked at the box cover... When you're scrolling through that sea of S and games, I actually just thought it was a city in a hilly landscape. I didn't realise it was in a cloud a city game. at all. Yeah, I, I I get that, and I I like the art style. And the artist has done a million games. He, he did Le Gronka, and he's done I can't remember the dude's name now, unfortunately. But he's done a million games. Uh, yeah, you see his artwork everywhere. He's a great artist. Clearly, this is the direction they wanted to go in. It's the functionality, that's all. So it's very much, to me, a fight between the interesting mechanisms, the thinky Euro, and on the other hand, the dryness, the lack of theme, the fact they haven't even bothered to call the resources names, they haven't bothered to give the buildings names, am I really going to feel like I'm building that cloud city, that exciting thing that drew me in? I'm weighing the two sides up, Sean. For you, which way has it fallen? It seems like one of those games that you're never going to be able to do everything, but there's still lots for you to do. I do find the artwork quite attractive in a quirky, weird way. I wasn't interested in this before, but I am interested in it now, and I think it's going to be a sneaky little treasure for me. Oh, mm. really? Yeah, yeah. Ah, I'm so torn on this game. I really am. I have never bought a Spielworks game. And I think I've probably picked every single one of theirs up. I got a Gora in trade, but I've picked every single one of the games up and just gone, oh, I just, just, it's that side of Euro dryness that I just don't want to go to. Deluvia Project is just the far side of dryness that I can't definitely say it's a treasure. It's just so close for me. I'm going to go and see it. I'm going to go and look at it. I'm going to try and get a play test of it. But at the moment, it's, it's a trap. There is a shock. But I hear it's on your wife's uh, purchase list, so I'm happy for her to buy it. So, moving away from the Deluvia project to Mistfall, a completely different setting. It's from NSKN Games, designed by Blacek Kubaki. I hope I've done him some justice with his name there. And he's designed two games I've never heard of called Songs of Arthur and We Are Darkness. It's one to four players at a whopping 120 minutes. It is a cooperative fantasy adventure card game. 
Now, there's far, far too much going on in this game for me to do it any justice. So I'm just going to stick to the very basics. Your players are going to represent a band of heroes striving to complete quests in dangerous lands by encountering and succeeding at a special quest encounter. The game starts with a choice of quest and heroes, and the relevant location cards are laid down along the table with the enemies that will be encountered during that quest. Each hero comes with their own deck comprising of basic gear and attainable items and abilities. The players will then go through the game phases which condense or basically move through the locations and you're going to be encountering and battling foes. One thing I can say about the game is that the decks represent the health in a very similar style to Pathfinder the Adventure game. So if your deck runs out, your health runs out. And I'm not going to go too much further into that because I think once you start down the path, there's so much going on in the game that it's just going to get too deep for what we're trying to do here. So what did you think about Mistfall, Rhonan? Well, it's from our buddies at NSKN. So that's going to attract me. I'm always going to go and have a look at that. They're friends of the podcast. And... See, I was going to be mean about them, Rhonan. Were you? I, I was going to be a little bit mean about them. I find NSKN games to be along the lines of Plaid Hat. They tend to need a lot of fixing. They are brilliant Mm. ideas, but they often have to bring out a second and a third edition to fix the problems from the first edition. So I wonder about their playtesting. Oh, okay. I think that those two companies get to a similar place via different routes and with different intentions. I think Plaid Hat are okay for you to have the odd dodgy game, as long as you get in a few brilliant ones. I think with NSKN, sometimes they don't test the margins enough. I feel like their systems all work, are all solid, will all provide you with a solid gaming experience every time. I'm just not sure that their playtesting is broad enough, and that sometimes in the extreme limits of the game system, they haven't quite covered all bases. It's, It's where... The simulations break down and, and the human factor comes in. Mm, possibly, possibly. There's there's definitely just something that makes me think I better check this one out before I buy it with them. But I was a big fan of Praetor and I really enjoyed Exodus. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of good stuff, but there's always something tiny wrong with it. But anyway, that's uh, probably me being a bit too pedantic. Go on, you and... Ouch. Yes. So, Ouch, poor NSKN. <laughs> Me calling them our buddies. Not anymore, apparently. Not anymore. <laughs> God. You get out of the bed on the wrong side this morning, sir. Okay. €38, Euros, I was going to say, is a good price for all the components you get in there. But, and this is a thing with NSKN, and it's something that's been mentioned, you're probably not going to get Portal, FFG, Plaid Hat even, standard components in there. No, not always. This is a card game. It's, it's very hard. And, yeah, there's always been talk about the cards being a little bit too thin, wearing away a little bit. But I don't mind that so much. It's not a game where all the cards are, have to be absolutely identical, otherwise people will pick it out. There's so much going on. There's so many cards, and I, I'm not too fussed about that. I'm not either, but I thought it was worth mentioning. And they're swimming now in waters in which the big companies swim. When you're trying to put out this longer adventure card game, 
I mean, the name kind of gives it away, right? Um, moving on. <laughs> Mentioned adventure card game. <laughs> when we covered the Pathfinder adventure card game during our D&D episode way back, one of our favourite episodes, and, and at other times, I always said that it's an idea that will get expanded upon, and I didn't feel like Pezo did enough with the idea. And here we go. We're seeing companies expanding upon the idea. They've obviously seen that there's money to be made in this idea, and what more can we do with it? In terms of Mistfall, they introduced the actual geographical factor, the different locations, the fact you have to travel with your party and you decide where you want to go, the varied scenarios, the fact that within the scenarios there are very different challenges and there are scenarios that require you to go to A, to get B, to unlock C, to finally do D and there's more of an evolving story in there. That's the first thing I'm going to say is... It looks like they've taken the adventure card game idea and then bumped it up a level. Oh, I love the idea of the game, absolutely. I very, very nearly kickstarted this when it was on Kickstarter. I think I probably had my finger over the button more than once. And I don't know, just probably because I kickstart way too much as it is. That's probably what, what just turned me away at the last minute. But yeah, they've really, really thought about where they want to go with this game in terms of the overall arc and lots of new things being brought in that we wanted to see in Pathfinder. So you're absolutely right, Ronan. I'll say two particular issues with that, Sean. Two things that I looked at and I thought, wow, that looks good. First one is you've got sort of special reward items you can gain by doing particularly well in your quests. And that reward deck, part of it is generic reward items, but not much of it. And the rest of it is specific better equipment for the specific characters you're using so if i choose to use the warrior for example his better armor axe and shield will go into the reward item deck and when we get a reward we pull it out it may well be one that's specifically tailored to me brilliant and, and similarly when you would basically you level up when you get your advancement cards you look at your deck of advancement cards the whole lot of them and you choose which one you want so the same character in different stories is going to develop in different ways and you're in control of that so you know, we need more range damage right cool well I improve my bow skill oh man we keep on getting jumped at by bears out of the forest well then I'll improve my observation skills we're more in control of our party yep I can only echo that yeah it's definitely exciting from that perspective one issue I've got with the game is that the rules overhead it's quite a undertaking frightening path to read through that rule book there's rules for rules and exceptions to rules and then it says that the cards are actually exceptions to rules if they accept the rules there's 27 different symbols that you need to know what they do and they're just going to be little symbols on the cards there's a lot to take in and learn in this game yeah and the components are quite text heavy too there's a lot of written on the cards that do particular things that i think is just the price you pay for the depth and variety they're offering you Okay, they're saying, yeah, there is a bit of input into this game. You do have to learn it. There's 20 pages to the rule book. Each of the cards do play differently. You probably need to get to know the characters to get the most out of them. Your first couple of games when you're trying to level up and you've got that whole deck of cards to look through, it's probably going to take you a while to go, well, I don't know what I can do. So I'm going to have to look and see what I can do. It's not for the casual gamer. It's the sort of game that you buy and you go, right... We're going to sit down and we're going to play this ten times. And we're all going to get to know it inside out. And we're going to explore some of these quests. And we're going to find out which is our favourite character. What that does is, as well as being exciting and, and offering something, it also raises the bar. 
if you tell me I've got to read 20 pages of dense rules and then I'll be constantly reading in my first two or three games again more cards and more rules and learning these 27 icons it has to be a better game to interest me than a 60 second rules explanation and that's the question with Mistfall I think is A. Do you want that type of depth to this type of game? Because one of the things about Pathfinder is you can grab it and you can start playing and you can kind of tell people what's going on on the fly. Kind of. You can also bosh through it yourself with two or three characters because they're not hard to run. And you can just leave the interaction cards out and you can just fly through it and you can explore it by yourself. Missful. Joel Eddy's done a video on it we've probably both looked at and he said you could probably best solo it with two hands playing and even he went that's going to be hard work to keep track of everything that's going on with two so Sean it's going to raise the bar all those rules overheads and it's going to have to be a bit more special to be worth it yeah uh, absolutely absolutely okay Ronan so again you've been fairly positive about the game where's the balance for you are you going to fall on trap or treasure I will say that I've played Pathfinder. I keep on referencing it because I think this has got to be an inspiration for Mistfall. I've played it a couple of dozen times and I enjoy it. But I am looking for something else in that area. Warhammer Quest is on the horizon. From the Gen Con videos, that's got my interest and that's definitely one that I'm looking at and going, you know, because it's FFG, there's a certain standard there I expect. I'm pretty sure I'm going to pick that one up. Mistfall, amongst lots of the other ones that are going on, I hadn't really noticed it until you picked it for us to preview. Having looked at it, do you know, I think that this could be the one to fill the hole for me, for a deeper adventure card game. And I think I'd really look forward to playing it, even solo and two-handing it, and going through and exploring it, because I think there's enough to explore. There's enough to get your teeth into. There's enough variety. The fact that I'm not at the whim of the game as to how my characters develop, that really is kind of the key thing to me, I think. When I earn a reward or experience or I do well, I get to choose what I get from it. I get to be in control of my characters. And that just sounds fantastic to me. So, Mistfall, for me, treasure. Right, and the world's gone mad. I think it's about to end. You're not going to say trap, are you? So, I've gone treasure <laughs> for the heavy, <laughs> mechanism-ridden Euro game. And you went to trap. And yeah. you've gone treasure for the pretty theme heavy adventure game and i'm gonna go trap oh man i think didn't didn't the campaign system expansion sway you i'm on the verge i'm right by the fence with my leg halfway over it but it's a pretty sight it's a pretty sight (laughs) (laughs) i'm almost there i have my reservations whether it's gonna all come together and work so I want to see that that's unfounded before I choose. But also, it's a big overhead. My game in time is slightly more limited than yours. I don't have the time to plough three or four games of this. That's ten hours of my time, possibly, with the rules learning and explanations, if it doesn't work. So I'm, I'm frightened of it. I really want to like it, and if it does work, I will probably buy it, but at the moment, it's a trap. Oh, yeah, I was hoping you were going to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> My buy list has got too big. <laughs> oh, I'll see if I can talk you into it. <laughs> probably. It's not very hard, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. Plenty. <laughs> 
So, forging onwards. The next game for us to run our rule over is Andromeda. Designed by Jan Zalewski, who is designing Civilizations, which is also coming out in 2015, and, and this, Andromeda. It's from Galacta Publisher. Now, they are pretty much Fancy Flight Games' Polish partners, but they also do their own games, for example, Metalum, which has a very similar gestation story to Andromeda. This game in itself is for two to four players, roughly 60 minutes. And when I'm talking about a similar background story, Metallum and Andromeda, they both won design competitions by Galacta and were subsequently developed by that publishing house and then are being published by them. In this game, players are each a different faction of aliens. And within their star system, an ancient human starship has turned up. And they are each going to be going out to that starship and competing to explore it, find what's in that, exploit what they find, and somehow win the game. And you'll find that I've started off vague, and the two of us are going to continue vague, because this is one of the games that, while it's caught my eye, there's not a lot of information currently out about Andromeda. What do we know? Well, there's a modular board of tiles which represent the ship, which start face down, and as players go and explore them, they're going to flip over and reveal their secrets. We know that it's all about rolling custom dice, which have got various actions on them, and the one mechanism that absolutely brought this to my attention and is why it's in this preview is the rolling the dice leads to an I split, you choose situation, whereby I roll the dice, then I split them into presumably a number of groups equal to number of players and then the other players get to choose which of those groups of dice they want that mechanism is something i think is woefully woefully underused it's fantastic i know tom vassar goes on about being underused some of my gaming friends go on about being underused so when i saw it here linked to this with the custom dice and the game won this competition therefore has got some merit to it behind it well that was enough for me and it better be because that's all we have Sean, don't go on for too long. Don't flood us with information. Andromeda. <laughs> um, the box cover is quite striking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Looks a bit like Galaxy of Trian. Let's hope it turns out better than that, eh? Oh, oh I mean, I really did get out of the, bar- the wrong side of the bed this morning. <laughs> the wrong side of the barrel? The wrong side of the <laughs> barrel. <laughs> that might explain it as well. You hung over. I literally rolled out the barrel. Are you having a barrel of fun? Oh, didn't he's here in Thursday? Oh, blimey, he's got to get better than that, Keith. Strike a light. <laughs> so, what do we know? Well, the designer's done a bit of a designer diary. If you go onto the game's page on Board Game Geek, and by all accounts, he seems to be a very, very passionate chap. The game started off as two separate games, but morphed into one, and. He seems to be really heavily playtesting the game. He's farmed the game out to a, almost like a professional playtesting league. And they've thoroughly looked at it and come back with some very positive comments about it. So, yeah, it, it is actually quite interesting, Ronan. Now, neither of us have started to whinge about the lack of rule book, lack of pictures, lack of information about it. And I think that's probably because they're quite big in Poland. As you said, they're the fantasy flight arm in Poland. But they're not massive publishers. They're not well known over here as much. 
and also he's quite a new designer. He's done civilizations and this, but they're his first two designs. At last Essen, they had banners made up for it and they had produced some pieces, not full production quality. So they were pushing it last Essen. So I think that Galacta have really got behind it and it's had a lot of playtesting. Sometimes you might think that screams issues. I'm hoping it just means they're being thorough. And they've saved up for this Essen because they want it to be absolutely perfect. They're bringing it out in several different languages at once. Possibly it's getting in all those translations and checking them out. I am giving the benefit of the doubt. I'm not complaining at them as much as I do others. I think because he seems quite charming in his designer diary and I'm kind of almost rooting for him. I want him to do well. Yeah, I think we are being quite forgiving because if you're right, if the if this rule book is ready and everything's ready to go, does it not harm your game by not releasing it? Well, I mean, we're, we're less than two weeks before Essen now. Is it not going to harm the game by not having that information out there? More than one person on Board Game Geek has, has specifically gone in and asked, can we please see the rules? This interests us. We need to see the rules now. We need to make a decision. And it's still not there. You're preaching to the converted, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course you should have the rules out. Of course you should be. If you've got faith in your game, show the rules. Let people see it. Let people see the finished components. Put up the stuff that you've sent to the printers and you've sent to the manufacturers and the photos of the you know, the prototype minis and what have you. Because you can see the little aliens. You know, everyone's got different colored aliens and stuff. They're, they're fairly basic models. But, but you know, have some faith in it. Anyway, what we do know it's I Split You Choose. I can't think of too many relatively deeper games with that mechanism. I played Piece of Cake the other night. It was cool. It's a fun little kids game about getting cake and eating it. So yeah, we had fun with it. Dragon Valley is a game I've mentioned a few times before. It's got it was kickstarted and then it just kind of disappeared and the publisher disappeared. But a very interesting I split. You choose. It's a tower defense fantasy game. If you ever see look for a copy of it. <laughs> go for it if it's the tower defense one because i really think it's an interesting game and in terms of andromeda i'm I'm gonna go look just on the basis of that but what more is there to go on so i think this whole point of previewing this is it sounds intriguing it sounds interesting but gah, get some information out i can't put it on my bus by i can't justify pre-ordering it because i don't know anything yeah, yeah, exactly the same as that. I I can't justify calling this a treasure because, again, I don't know enough about it. So it has to be a trap, but it is a great mechanic. You're absolutely right. But for now, it's a trap. Just on the basis of the fact it won the competition with Galacta, thing, leap in the dark. I always make one or two leaps in the dark at and You can't place this everything. I like to find something relatively obscure. I'm going to go treasure with Andromeda. It's just, I've got a feeling about it. It's in my waters, Sean. It's in my waters. The less about your waters, the better. So, we are off to help a thrash metal band become famous and rich. This is Thrash and Roll from Game Fabrica. They're a Polish company who designed Autus, which is the game we previewed in a previous Essen Treasure Hunt. And they also did Cargo Train, which I was quite interested, but didn't get to play test when I was over in Essen last year. It's designed by Alexander Bela, who did a game called Celestia, and Christoph Matusik, who did Craftsman and Urban Panic. So Christoph definitely got some pedigree there. Two to four players, 
45 to 90 minutes is suggested playing time. So players are managers or general overlords or something or other of a metal band in this worker placement and dice rolling game. In your quest to make your band the most popular, you have a board with eight locations offering actions. The way you obtain the action is by placing dice. And after the first one, the following dice must have the same value or more than the previous one. And that's how that action selection or worker placement works. So a quick overview of the locations. They're all thematic. So you've got the Metalhead Club. And there you go there to draw extra fans and get rid of scandals. You've got the Rock Academy. Again, you're going to get fans and gain experience. The Broken Bone increases your fame. Trash em All is a musical instrument shop where you're going to improve your instruments and equipment. The Metal Mind, you can go to record a single or an album. The Venom Nest is another way to grow more famous. And you can go on a turbo tour, which is basically going on tour for the rest of the round. There are a number of cards in the game too. There are character cards, and these are going to help you by giving one-off bonuses. You have fan cards, which enhance your actions at the locations, and you have scandal cards, and these are going to allow you to break the game rules in some way, but they may come back to haunt you. At the end of the game, the bands play in the Thrush O Scare ceremony, which is basically the last chance to score some points, and further fame points are awarded to the bands with the best albums and the most popular band members. And after that, the band with the most fame declared the winner. Thrush and Roll Ronan, I know you enjoyed the rule book. In broken English. <laughs> this is one of your bugbears. Off you go. Just put your prototype rule book up on Board Game Geek. It will get edited for you. I don't know how many times it's got to be said until people start listening. All right. <laughs> I don't know what else to do about it, Sean. Broken English. Not great. Not great. It's not great. We're going to be, later on in this episode, looking at another game, Bomaso, and that's got a draft rulebook up in broken English. The day it was posted, the publisher went on BGG and said, English speakers, here's the draft, please get in contact with us. And they did, and they've revised it. Boom. How hard is that? For free. Okay. Let's not worry about the broken English for now, okay? Let's move on to the structure of the rulebook. There are eight pages of rules, Sean. Yeah, yeah. On what page do we start getting told how a turn works? Five? Six. You were oh, close. I was close. It's worse than that. It's six. <laughs> page six out of eight before you even tell me what it is I'm doing on a turn. In broken English. In broken English. You can mull over that for a while if you wish to. It's not a great rule book. That's absolutely for sure. It's quite a simple game when it boils down to it. A simple worker placement. We've played loads of games where that worker placement with dice, we have to go one up. We actually played one the other day, Marco Polo. We have to go one ahead and be slightly higher in some spots. But that is a really good game. <laughs> Nothing new and inventive here. And they somehow managed to make it incredibly difficult to learn by just having the most obscure rules layout ever but anyway the thing that drew me to this game is i remember way back when myself and ronan were really into our football management simulations there used to be a rock band manager game 
And it was just something different. It's still a, still a management simulation because we are that interesting and windswept. But it actually held the attention. It was interesting trying to get your band to the top of the charts or whatever it was at the time. Sean? Yeah. We had a moth stuck in a lampshade that held our attention for nine hours once. Yeah. These are low standards you're setting. A game that we played on the Amiga. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, I remember it fondly, right? It's the point I was laboring. And this it reminded me of it. I quite like the artwork. It sounded like a decent game, a worker placement with dice. Yeah, it's been done before, but they always tend to be interesting. And it looks nice. The artwork isn't amazing, but I like it. I, th- I think it's colourful and it looks grubby, which I think it's supposed to look. So that's what drew me to the I game. I look grubby. You never say you like me. I say I like you all the time. Just, <laughs> yeah. just in different but- ways. The dice worker placement, though, just seems irritating in this game. So the action space is you get better actions if you're able to put more dice in, which you can boost with those cards you can use. But in order to put more dice in, you either have to have straights, two, three, four, five, or you have to put in pairs, triples, so three fours or two fives or whatever. It's not I'm choosing which number of dice to go on, because I know that if I put a six in there, it might not be great for me, but it makes it harder for everyone else to go with the likes of Alien Frontiers, Bora Bora, Marco Polo. It's what have I rolled? And have I rolled straights or pairs or have I not? Well, I might really need to do the three power action in there. Oh, I've rolled no doubles. That's going to be a pain. I'll spend cards then. Just, it's not an interesting way of doing that. It's not an interactive way of doing it. It doesn't matter what you've put in there. It's just what I can put in there, which is kind of the worst kind of worker placement, where it doesn't really matter what you've done. I don't mind that so much, as long as there's something that you can mitigate. And the the cards I found quite interesting, the scandal cards where you're kind of pushing your luck a little bit, you have to get rid of them before the end, otherwise they're going to come back to haunt you. I quite like that aspect of it. I, I mean, I don't dislike this game at all. I actually find it quite charming, but whether it's all going to come together and whether the mechanisms are going to hold up... It's a real simple Euro. A really lightweight, simple Euro. Are the mechanisms going to... Are they going to hold up to the theme? No. <laughs> it's Euro. Are you supposed to be a thrash metal band and it's worker placement to, in effect, earn points? It's, it's illustrated by a singles and album chart. You're running points. Yeah, but you're the manager behind them. You're not a thrash metal band, per se. But anyway, one of the issues I had with the game is it seems to be about four of the actual worker placement areas that are almost exactly the same. Yeah. They go there to earn fame. You go there yeah. to earn fame. You go there to earn the fans and fame. And you go there to earn fame. But like when you're earning the fans and fame, you need to activate it with five or something. So yeah. what, I roll five of a number on my five dice, or a one, two, three, four, five, or I spam a load of cards. You know, and lots of places you go there, you take a card, I go there, take a card, go there, take a card. They all do similar things. There's not a big difference in what they do. There's not, there seems to be a big difference in different strategies here. There doesn't seem a way to manipulate the game. It just seems to be, if you roll luckier than me, you'll get a slight edge, your album will be slightly higher in the charts, and you'll win. I, I don't know, man. I've talked about... This game for too long. I've read about it for too long. There's nothing new. There's nothing innovative. If the theme grabs you, okay, go for it. You know, there's nothing offensive here either. There's just nothing here for me. It doesn't interest me in the slightest bit. Thrash and Roll's a trap. I'm not 
as adamant it's not going to be for me as you are, but I do see a lot of what you see in the game. It's just probably not enough. The theme does actually grab me. I will probably have a look at it, but yeah, it's too simple. I don't think there's enough variety in what you can do. There doesn't seem to be too many routes to victory, so I think I'm probably going to steer clear of buying it, so it's a trap. Okay, moving on to towards the halfway mark of this episode, and the next game we're going to look at is Xenon Profiteer. This is designed by T.C. Petty III, and he's most well known for designing both Viva Java coffee games, both the actual board game and the dice game. It's published by Eagle Griffin, who have very much gone to a Kickstarter sort of a business model recently, but they're known for the likes of For Sale, Defenders of the Realm, and Francis Drake. This game is listed playtime of 30 minutes, 2 to 4 players, and it's a deck building and deconstruction game. Players are competing to be the most influential domestic supplier of Xenon. Yeah, yeah, should we stop there on just that that one line of theme, Sean? What? What? You're saying something. I don't know what that noise was, but you should probably put that hog away now. (laughs) Okay, it's a boring theme. It is completely clear to me from everything they've put out about the game that this is very much tongue-in-cheek. It almost feels like he was dared to make a game about something more boring than, I don't know, coffee production. So he went for Xenon production. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. So what is it all about? You're going to be building a deck and creating a tableau of cards in front of you to create a Xenon distillation facility. Overall, what you're going to be doing is taking in air packets of cards which will be four cards with oxygen nitrogen krypton and xenon in and then you're trying to filter down that air and get rid of those other three gases that you don't want and have just xenon cards which you're going to be able to collect in a tableau in front of you and then you're going to be able to use to fulfill contracts i'll get back to that in a second now there are two phases to the game the first phase is distill, where you're trying to get rid of those elements. And as you go through, you're going to have cards in your tableau that help you be more effective. But basically, you can get rid of one gas for free. And then you're trying to be left with just off the gas cards that I mentioned, just Xenon cards. And once you do that, you've distilled it and you can pop it down on the right-hand side of your facility. When you move on to the next phase, there's two things you can do. You can take air, which I just said is that packet of four cards, which which brings, you have to take air into your facility to be able to obviously distill it out, but you're taking a load of rubbish into your deck, which is where the deck deconstruction comes from, getting rid of those gas cards. Or there are lines of contracts and upgrades, and you can wipe one of those uh, and get new cards out that you want to be able to get. Now, what what am I talking about? You won't be able to get them. Well, the next part of the second phase, you can either bid or you can buy, and I'll go through buy first. Simple as you can buy upgrades, and upgrades are going to go on the left-hand side of your tableau, and they're going to improve all your further actions from then on in the game. The other things you can buy, if you like, are pipelines, and there are three different colours of pipelines. The pipelines go on the bottom part of your tableau, and it's just a way to score points, that's all it is. Or you can take contracts now contracts are free and that's what you spend xenon on and when you collect xenon on the right hand side of your tableau you get contracts that are like fill up light bulbs or components for cars or all the different uses that the gas is really put to in industry which i certainly don't know them all and they're incredibly boring like special light bulbs used in, in chemical factories But I think they're meant to be incredibly boring. I think this is all meant to be funny. And I found it funny. 
And you, so you can take contracts to put your Zen on and they'll earn you money and they'll earn you points and, and that's what you're going to use your gas to do. The second thing I mentioned was beard. What you can do is you can pop markers onto these cards which prevents them from getting wiped if anyone takes a wipe action. Also gives you a discount and multiple players can put these bid tokens on the same cards to give each other discounts. If someone tries to buy it, you've got a bid token on, you have, they have to pay you money, etc. It brings a bit of interactivity. If I can't afford this card at the moment, it doesn't mean it's gone. It means I'm going to pop a token on it but then everyone knows I want it and we can start fighting for it maybe contracts that everyone wants and it will become a bit of fight for that once any player has got five upgrades down there or five contracts done that's going to be the last round of the game you're going to add up your points and you're going to see who's won this quick deck builder with the different theme I was going to say interesting theme that's probably not quite accurate sure have at it I don't care if it was tongue in cheek the theme the look of the game. Not the look. The look is t- it's boring. Oh, the look. It looks fantastic. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. It, it looks it, awful. Oh, you're crazy. It looks awful. These line drawings of pipe designs. There's some pipe cars that look like pipes. Pfft, whatever. The gas cars, the xenon cars are just boring. You want to make a boring, tedious game. Well done. You've succeeded. I'm bored. Right? So, we've talked about in the past how a good theme enhances the way you learn about the game. You're interested, so you're interested in to learn about the mechanisms. I don't care about the mechanisms in this game because I'm just so bored. And nothing about the theme of this game helps me to learn or this game to endear itself to me. So this, that's just a major problem. How does it not help you learn it? It all makes it sense. May, it might make sense, but I don't, I don't care. I don't care. I'm not interested to learn about the next mechanism and how it all fits together. I had to because we're, we're looking at this and for the show. Otherwise, I really wouldn't have touched this. But, but he's actually made it thematic. What you do fits into what you're supposed to be doing. Yo, thematic deck builders tend to be longer, right? You think thematic deck builder, you're looking at Xenoshit Onslaught, three hours. Legendary Alien, two and a half hours. Cool Worlds, three hours. Trying to get theme into a quick deck builder is very, very difficult. Whatever you think about the theme, they've done it. It all makes sense. You know what you're doing. When you're buying a contract card, you know what that contract card... Oh, I know what that is. They're using Xenon to do whatever the hell it is. Uh, When I buy an upgrade, I don't know what these upgrades are in reality. But when I look at them and go, it's called an air filter and it improves your filtering of air. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Now I know why I'm buying it. It doesn't enhance my interest in the game. So where I'm thinking, oh yeah, I want to find out about more about that. It might all come together, but okay, let's move along. Let's find something else to fight about. Yeah. <laughs> the first part of the game is the isolating the Xenon from the other gases. That just feels clunky. I just felt, you get a card that says you can do this, this and this. Okay, well I'll use that then. There you go. I've isolated Wait, you're describing it. any card game? No, but they, they are too prescriptive. The cards in it, they, they seem too prescriptive to me. That you, this, you need this card and then you can do it. They don't, you don't seem to be able to chain things together very well in your five card hand. That's just the way I felt about it. I just didn't But, but you're not chaining the, card, the cards in your hand. You're chaining the upgrades in your tableau for where you want to go and what you want to do. Yeah, but it just felt 
like, yeah, okay, I'm always going to be able to do that. If I take the packet of air, I'm always going to be able to do that. So that's there for me. I know I can do that. You're not doing anything clever. You've already you've put together that. Or you're going to draw the cards into your hand that allow you to take two nitrogen and oxygen out. And then the next one is going to take the, the other gas, whatever it is, I can't remember. And you're going to be left krypton. And then you're going to be left with the xenon. See? Theme, I remembered. <laughs> Maybe it's because I've got an E at chemistry A level. Maybe it's because I'm a high-level chemist. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I often see you extracting xenon from gases. <laughs> yeah, but then I get chased away from the police. <laughs> it just doesn't seem to me. It probably is quite clever, and there are some interesting mechanisms. I actually like the pipeline mechanism where you're getting the different coloured pipelines. and I like the fact that it has upgrades in it, and upgrades always appeal to me in these types of card games, so I can upgrade this card to another thing and bring in another card that's going to do see, things to there I me. think that's where the clever bit is, because the balance between, do I go for pipelines because you don't have much money I go for pipelines because it's obvious scoring do I go for upgrades because it's going to make me better for the rest of the game or do I chase contracts because the game's getting to the end and that's the only way to score points and the fact it's only supposed to be half an hour long that's where I think the interest is you can't just buy each upgrade that comes along because you haven't got time and if you just buy five upgrades and someone else has finished with their five contracts or they've got three contracts you've got one but you've filled up your upgrade slots you finish the game you're going to lose and yet you have to have a balance there of, of oh well Shall I take this upgrade or not? It goes back to it. I don't care. I'm extracting gas. I don't care. Sometimes a theme of the game is going to sell it to me or put me off much more than it is with you. You were always, from day one, we built you as the mechanics person, someone who's going to delve right into a game and look at the individual mechanisms. I like the feel of a game. I like the arc of a game. And this one just doesn't seem to me. Theme, what's the argument we always have? Theme doesn't mean fantasy, elves, orcs, and plastic bits. No, it doesn't. No. But theme means something that's going to interest you and draw you to a game, for me. And it's this same doesn't. Same for me, but this does. I think that's where we're going to have to settle our differences and say, okay, that draws it to you. Settle our differences makes... is quite threatening. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe agree to disagree? No, no, we'll settle our differences. We'll settle them, shall we? Not a problem. Awesome. <laughs> Dawn at last things. <laughs> it just doesn't draw me into the game. I was thoroughly bored reading the rule book. It was a drag to read through the rules and understand the game because of the theme. And you can put together a wonderful collection of mechanisms, and that might be what 504 is. It might be a wonderful collection of mechanisms. I'm not going to like it because of the theme well, doesn't seem to me. Just went there. I went there. I went there. And it, this is just feels like the same to me. He's probably put together a lovely set of mechanisms by all accounts, but they're not going to do anything for me because I'm not drawn in by the theme. I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm not going to place myself as a Zenon profiteer. So it's going to be a trap for me. Such a wrong <laughs> If you bring out a deck builder, man, here's two things you've got to do for me, okay? You've got to give me a different theme, and you've got to give me something different with the deck building. Right here, it's giving me a different theme, and it's giving me something different with the deck building. It is not the same as all the others. I just don't think he could have done any better. The theme, I just find it funny, okay? 
in terms of what the actual theme is, you kind of almost can't believe it. I, I'm guessing that's why I first clicked it. I went, what? It's a game about what? Making fire suppression systems with Xenon? What? That's weird. So I clicked on it. And then I see that they've actually put some effort in. They haven't just pasted a theme on. They've actually, it all makes sense. And they've bothered to make a game about this. That makes me laugh. That makes me think, well done. Well done for going out on a limb. Well done for taking a risk and saying, ah, I can make a theme about that. I can make that fun. Do you know, if you've managed to make <laughs> Xenon Distillation fun, you're probably the best game designer in the world. I think he has. I, I love it. Seriously, this is right at the top of my want list. From the funny theme and the instructional video they put out has just got funny little captions on it and what have you that where they're subtly, dryly poking fun at themselves to the way it works and the balance and the speed of play. And I think it looks amazing. No matter what Sean says, this is a full-on treasure. I want a copy of Zen and Profiteer. And that's it. Okay, next up for me is a game called Taverna. It comes from Geek Attitude Games, and they produced Essen the Game Spiel 13, which is a game that divided myself and Ronan. I bought the game, and Ronan was quite incredulous as to the fact that I bought the game. It was designed by Carl Marcel, and it seems to be Carl's first game. It's two to five players with a playing time of 60 to 90 minutes, and it is a fantasy worker placement and area control game based around inns. So players are innkeepers in the capital city of Averna, and it is St. Averna's Day, which is the biggest celebration in the kingdom. Is that a real saint? Of course it is, yes, absolutely. Yeah, good. Okay. Patriot saint of the game pit. <laughs> I don't know after this, this review. Uh, let's see. You are trying to earn fame and fortune by schmoozing the four peoples of the kingdom. And the four peoples are humans, dwarves, elves, and orcs. Each round, you will choose and place customers in one of the six inns on the board. You will have ownership of some of these inns, and customers being placed in your inns will offer you monetary reward and various other rewards. Each customer comes with a power that offers the placing player some kind of boon, and can also mess with the other players. There are dignitaries that can be bought off to provide powerful favours, and you also have the opportunity to cast naughty little spells that can tip the scales in your favour. Players will be trying to garner favour with these four races and the king, and this is going to score points and bonuses, and the person with the highest favour at the end of the game will be declared the victor. Taverna Ronan. So how was Essen Spiel 2013, the game? Are you actually thinking that I've opened the box? (laughs) (laughs) I thought you played it, no? No, never played it. I I bought it literally for sentimental reasons. I intended to play it, but I don't think I ever got around to it. Mm, mm, It made that much of a good impression on you. Yeah. This Taverna is from a first-time designer as well. So we've got a publisher with a, we'll be polite and say, a mixed track record. (laughs) And a first-time designer. So why were we attracted to it? I think the first thing has got to be Sean and everyone saying this and this is why it's turning up on quite a few preview lists it looks good 
is nice art on it. It pops. It's, as you love to say, vibrant. And it is standing out amongst the crowd just for those colours and that artwork. It is. I suppose it's done its job and the publishers have done their job in terms of actually making it stand out amongst the crowd. The game that looks most like in terms of that cartoony artwork was Belfort for me. And that's what drew my eye to it because, as you know, I'm a big fan of Belfort. Yes. Belfort, however, has a game in the box. (laughs) Are you suggesting that Taverna is somewhat different? I, I think it's a simple question. It's you're just drafting and placing cards. How much choice have you got? In all honesty, it just appears to be extremely, extremely simple. Just draft the card that suits you, pop it into one of the inns, hope to match the symbols, get a really simple reward if you do so. Next person goes. How much choice is there in the game, Sean? From afar, there doesn't seem to be that much choice at all. When I'm looking at these games, I always try and think of uh, how would I go about trying to score a victory? Is there many avenues to victory? And I just don't see that that you've got the area control side and you've got the moving up the favour tracks of the various peoples. And for me, it doesn't seem like there's a combination that you can use for those. You just go the way that the cards dictate you go, it seems. Yes. So it's got an advertised playing time of 20 minutes then, is it? <laughs> 60 to 90, old boy. 60 to 90. Mm. Yeah. 60 to 90, a very simple gameplay. It looks nice. So you say there's very simple gameplay, Ronan, which would suggest that crafting a rule book for this uh, very simple game would be a nice, easy task and shouldn't really cause us any grief. I got a headache reading this rule book. I didn't really think that, but that's because I didn't think there was much to it. I guess I didn't pay that much attention to the structure because I wasn't taking in that much information. For even just this tiny little bit of blurb that I did about the game at the beginning, there's only a tiny little piece where it actually tells you what the four peoples are. It gives you this picture of the setup of the game, then there's a gap before you actually read anything about the setup of the game, and then it just jumps. It doesn't the phases of the game they don't make sense as you're reading them i had to read the rule book two or three times and that could be we're getting to the rules blindless stage of of the rs and research now but i just really didn't get on with the rule book but yeah well, to be honest sean i don't think there's too much more to be said about it because it's a pretty but let's say vacant game Far too light for me. I'm not fussed at all. I'm not going to spend that long playing a game with so few choices in it. And in my opinion, Taverna is going to be a trap. Yeah, so I was drawn, as I said, to the art. And the game looked like it was going to be fun. It is completely random what you choose. Also, there's nastiness in the game. And if you're going to have nastiness in the game, for me, I think that you have to be able to set things up. And it's being completely random just will ruin that yeah it's a trap for me just doesn't offer anything that i think i want out of the game okay so moving on to another euro but possibly one with slightly more going on this is a bomazzo this is from designer stefano castelli he has designed cole combat orientated armor league and turandot and from publisher geokicks.it it's a big Italian publisher that create their own games and also import lots of other games into the Italian language. This game is for 2 to 4 players and a listed playtime of 45 to 60 minutes. So what are we doing in Bomazzo? 
You are the head of a family, and you are managing a smaller region of fiefdom within the Orsini family fiefdom. Now, Bomazzo itself is a park, which the Orsini family built, and in reality this is a true place, and they filled it with huge statues which represent different mythical figures and different gods and what have you. Your job within the game is to manage your village and your area off this land to provide income in terms of food and money and wine. And wine basically is a wild card. It can be food or coins. You're going to be using cards to create developments to boost how your village works. And you're going to be using your workers to visit harvest areas, to collect more resources, same things, food, coin and wine, or you're going to go to Bomazzo itself and visit the various statues for the favours the gods will grant you. And when you visit these statues, you have to pay a tribute. And each statue has a minimum tribute of coins and food. And as I say, you can always use wine instead. However, once one player has visited a statue, they can't go back there again. But if you wish to go and pay a tribute to the same statue, you must pay more than them. And they don't have to pay the minimum tribute. They can pay more than minimum tribute to make it more expensive for other players. If at any point two wine get placed on a statue it gets flipped over it goes to sleep for the rest of the round no one can use it also when i take an action when i take a tribute the other players can copy the same action they have to pay the same tribute as me and two extra wine which means they're not using a worker to do it but it's being very expensive for them so there's a lot of how much am i paying to take actions how much am i making it cost other players and in which terms is it expensive in terms of resources to do something or is it expensive in terms of using a worker to do it? The development cards I mentioned earlier, they're going to improve you in various different areas. They're going to give you an improvement on certain tracks such as culture and science and architecture. You can use them to boost the devotion to statues, which is very important come scoring. You can use cards to devote to statues to sort of aid their importance within the game. And I will come back to that. And the development cards can also be upgraded up to a second level where they become more impressive. In terms of the statues themselves, there's various different ones and they have various different in-game effects. But the likes of the genius, the ogre, the goddess, the giant, the elephant, the tortoise. And they will basically improve you in different areas. They'll improve you on different tracks. And they're also going to score in different areas. And at the end of the game, all those different statues are ordered according to how many devotion cards were given to them by the players during the game. So the statue that got the most devotion is going to be placed at the bottom left of the board. And I'm going to go clockwise from there. And the first three are going to score more points than the last three in the middle three will score, obviously, a middle number of points. And then each statue scores every player for whatever it particularly wants. So you're going to get statues that will score you for having the most science and statues that score you for having the most coins, and statues that are having the most collected certain resources. So that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to collect resources with your workers and with your developments. You're trying to build developments in your city, and you're trying to appease the right gods at the right times for the right prices, and devote to them in order to make all that scoring and going worth something at the end of the game. Sean, it's a Euro. It's got lots of interlinking mechanisms, which is possibly why things seem to overlap as I was explaining the rules there. What are your first thoughts on Bomazzo? First thoughts, Ronan, is that theme, uh, which is different, and it definitely drew me in, and it separated itself from the usual colonialism or coal mining or what, what have you. So definitely I was interested in the theme, but... And I'm going to tie the theme in with the looks of the game. 
my first look at that game, Ronan, it's kind of set me back a little bit. The main board just looks messy, and the player boards just look bland to my eye. The looks don't help the game, and I think you're right on both accounts there. It's covered. It looks like a bland Euro. Okay, they haven't made a huge effort to make it look different. The a lot of the boards and the cards are just plain, literally beige on white drawings. And then the other part is they've used almost photo-like artwork off the actual statues, and they don't seem to go with the other artwork in the game. And the whole thing ends up looking both bland and disjointed at the same time. And I think you're right, Sean, because. In terms of mechanisms, I think there's some interesting things going on, but I think the way the game looks may prevent people from taking the step in and exploring further. You're talking about the mechanisms. Now, I'm again going to link that into the theme. One of my worries about this game, and I'm really interested in this game, I'd love to give it a playtest if they've got an actual playtest area that's big enough that I'm actually going to be able to get a go on it. But is the theme sort of almost too over-encompassing, if that's even a word. Have they put too much into the theme of this game, and have they not really explored those mechanics as well as they could have done by trying to crowbar this theme into them? I completely disagree with you. That's not unusual. I think it's all mechanisms. I think that's what the whole game is. This is all about the mechanisms. It's all about creating a functioning engine and being able to do that despite the fact that other players are coming in and blocking you. I think they've tried to crowbar the theme of statues into a Euro game, basically. And uh, you know, Do the statues actually make any sense? Does, does the giant really want you to have lots of architecture on your track that doesn't make sense? That's what I was getting at, yeah, because theme is actually really interesting. And I actually did a little bit of research outside that, looking at actually that's a really cool place to go. I'd love to go there. But those statues and even some of the the mechanisms around where you go and pay tribute to the statues. We talked about one in particular, and you talked about it in your build-up, where you have to go and pay a certain amount of food, and then the next person along has got to pay the food that you've paid, plus that amount again. So I felt that was a quite an easy way to block people off and make it just very easy to stop people doing what you want to do, play negatively. And there's another way as well where you can just close it down by offering a certain amount of wine, I believe. So I wasn't sure about that particular mechanism well i think that just makes it really interactive you you then have to care where other people are going and is it worth it to you to make an action more expensive or to spend valuable wild card wine just to shut a statue down because you can't do it again anyway and it's a case of if people are coming to that statue for example it means they're not going somewhere else and making it more expensive for you so if i spend my resources to shut a statue down there are now fewer options for me to go to and more of those options will have offerings on them because the other players have to go there and then the rest around becomes more expensive for me and that blocking is very much going to be linked to who's running the most efficient engine in terms of back in their village and who's getting the most resources in and who can afford to take those steps and i like the way that the two which could be really different and and not connected at all are connected in that way through interactivity 
and, and not just on the actions, but interactive in the scoring as well. You can see who's devoting to which god and who's using them more often, where they're going up on tracks, because it's a tight game, and it's not a game you can do everything in. You're going to have to specialise. And I think that level of watching other players and what they do, that's where a lot of the interest lies for me. Okay, right, well, yeah, so... This game, it really is interesting. And as I said, I'd love to give it a go. But the one thing that's at the back of my mind is that it feels like a game that has a lot of promise, but maybe hasn't been playtested. I don't know how what their playtesting is like, and maybe it all will come together. But at the moment, it's just feeling like something that's not quite finished for me i'm gonna i'm gonna put it to you do you think that's because the rule book isn't that great and the rule book wasn't quite finished and we know that they're editing it and they've got native english speakers in on the rule book to sort it out because i got the feeling of that from the rule book rather than from the gameplay yeah i think you're right to some degree i do yeah the rule book does need a lot of work and it is quite confusing but it's still just that niggling thought at the back of my mind. And as, as we always say, we, we haven't played these games. We don't know what it's going to turn out to be like. So it's probably one of my most difficult ones. I'm going to say trap, but absolutely prepared to be completely wrong about this one. And I hope I am. Well, for me, I feel like it's been done a slight disservice. I don't think it's got very appealing looks. It hasn't got a great rule book out yet. I think it looks slightly kind of a muddle when you first approach it. But I think there's a lot of interesting things going on underneath the bonnet of this particular game. I think it could be a very tight, interesting, interactive Euro, a mean Euro, which attracts me as well. And I'm going to say that this one is a treasure, but in traps clothing. And I'm not sure it's going to get the attention at Essen. I don't think it's going to be a big hit, but I think those that play it are going to enjoy it. Okay, so that was Bomazo, and now we are going to move on to The Curse of the Black Dice. It comes from Borden Dice, and they did Dice Brewing last year, and they've got another game out this year called Exoplanets, designed by Alexander Lauk, and as far as I can see, he's a first-time designer. And it's two to four players, and it's only 20 minutes. It's a pirate-themed dice game where players are going to tackle missions with objectives that are going to be set by rolling a bunch of black dice. So to start off, a quest tile is chosen that shows the rewards on offer, the penalties for failure, and of course what you need to do to achieve this success. Each tile will have some or all of the six symbols that match the ones on the black dice in a certain order, and then the black dice are rolled, each player rolling five and they are placed above the matching symbols on the quest card depicting the result rolled. This shows what needs to be achieved to complete each stage or adventure of the quest. For example, you might have four anchors, two maps, two ships, four flags, and one, one hook, and two barrels in a three-player game. Then, players are going to roll their own dice in their chosen colour and add all matching dice of one result to an adventure. If between them, players manage to match or exceed the number of black dice with the correct symbols, then they succeed at their adventure and gain the reward. But should they not, they will get penalised, and the extra black dice will be rolled again and could be added to other quests, causing them to fail. 
There are also pirate cards available to all, and you can pay to use their special abilities with rum tokens, which can also be spent to re-roll your dice. And each quest is completely separate with a separate set of rules dictating how you play it. The pirates lose the game by having three damage on their ship, or by having all the pirates' cards turned face down. You win the game by having the most gold at the end of the game. And one thing I should say is that the gold tokens are completely random. You don't know what you're going to get with them. I think they go from one to five coins. So, curse of black dice, Ronan. So, you're ringing alarm bells with me to start with. Any game that says one person wins, but everyone can lose, alarm bells go off. There are sirens, there are hooters, because that usually says to me, it's fragile. I'm not as against it as you are. I'm not worried about it as you are. But yeah, yeah, there, there's always alarm bells with that kind of mechanic. Well, what's to stop someone tanking it? Okay, let's say there's a challenge, okay? And the way the different adventures work with the black dice, uh, they're different for each one. Say there's one there that whoever has the most dice is going to get three gold and no one else is going to get any, all right? And you go there and you park up and say, right, there's three black dice on this. I'm putting my three dice I rolled in here. I'm getting those coins. The rest you have to deal with the other because you have exactly the same number of dice as there are black dice. So in order to win perfectly, you have to exactly match where the black dice are. Now say Sean's playing and he puts his three dice opposite the three black dice. He says, I'm going here, I'm taking these gold coins. And I look at it and go, well, then you're probably going to win. What's the incentive to me to carry on playing for the team when I think Sean's going to win? But you can also place your dice there. You can oversubscribe to each other. But there's certain ones where you go, most, most placed dice are going to get the gold coins. There's some where everyone gets stuff. You know, or, or how about what's going to make me put my two dice in the space that says, if you pass this, everyone gets a gold coin. Doesn't matter if your dice are there or not. I think that's something that we're going to have to play test it to see and it also dependent on on players i suppose it's a 20 minute game you're not going to get that much depth i don't know if people are going to deliberately tank a game when they're trying to win it i, I don't think this is depth this is this is simple motivation okay why am i playing what what why am i trying to do what i'm trying to do well you're trying to win and i think if you're trying to win just by tanking everything you're not going to win so. But if it looks like I'm not going to win, there's nothing to stop me tanking it. That's why I hate one winner all lose. Because if I feel like I'm losing, and I roll my dice, and there's an obvious good move for the team, and there's an obvious bad move for the team, why should I do the good move for the team? Why should I help you win when I'm not going to But you're win? only going to be able to tank it if you get the dice rolls yourself. But I also have to choose to help. Yeah? Or, what's to stop me using my rum, operating a crew member, and turning my dice to the wrong side and going, no, I'm not helping you lot. You've stitched me all up. You've taken all the good spots. I'm not going there. I don't think you're going to want to waste a rum token. They seem to be very scarce. But you're the point is... hold on to your rum what, token. The, that's exactly the point. I'll just waste it. Because I don't care, because I'm not going to win anyway. It's a bad mechanism. Okay? It very, very rarely works in games. I don't think it's a bad mechanism. I think it just needs to be treated with more care. I just think it needs to be thought out better and treated with more care. This may or may not work, but, uh, I mean, the proof will be in the pudding. But, okay, so we talked about that. There are some interesting mechanisms within this, Ronan, aren't there? That 
mechanism where the dice, if you don't fulfill the adventure's conditions, the dice roll onto another, and people think they might think they might have things set up for themselves in future adventures, and all of a sudden they've got two extra dice, so do they plan for that? That's interesting to me. I like that. Yeah, that is great. That is. I like the fact that black dice explode. So if there's four black dice on the side, and we've only got two on our side, the two extra black dice will get re-rolled and added if, if appropriate. I do like that. I like the fact that it changes up the dynamic. I like the fact that it drives you, if you're playing to win as a team, it drives you to tackle the early missions and almost prioritizes them over, in fact, it's the late, generally the later missions that give you the most gold. In a pure co-op, I like it. In this one, I'm sorry, but I come back to the same point. What's to make me tackle those? I'm going to put my dice where the gold is. And you lot, you lot need to deal with that now. Dean. There's other incentives. It's not just about the gold. There's other incentives that set you up for future. You can pick up okay. tokens and bonuses as well. It's not just about the gold in every quest. But that's how you win. If you tank every single quest, then that is just completely negative play and you're ruining the game for everyone. If you're trying to win, you're also going to be thinking about future moves. Okay, so fine. The random values for the gold. I have no answer to you for that. That's just bizarre. <laughs> like, you know, some twos and threes or something like that, but ones and fives? And you have no idea knowing which one you're going to get? Basically, somebody can collect nine coins, get really unlucky, and someone who's collected two can win. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> right. Unlikely. I've been possible. really, really miserable about this game. Okay? So let's get positive. Fantastic rulebook. Yep. Yeah, very easy. It's brilliant. In detailed, covers everything, sorts it all out, walks you through every single quest. It's there easily to refer to. It's just a great rule book. It does everything it needs to do. Well done. The short play time. It's only 20 minutes to play. Cool. Yeah, anything else? That, that your positives? <laughs> um, I think it's probably going to be best played just as a co-op, in my opinion. But then, would it be tough enough? Do you have to then play it possibly without the crew again? We're just really guessing about this, but you know, is that the option there to play it? There are other games in which this system, for example, you know, Legendary Marvel, you can lose as a team, but there's only one winner. And quite often, especially if you're not playing villains, you just play it as a team, set up a hard setting, and, and go from there. Or Castle Panic. Allegedly, you're supposed to keep score as to who's killing the most monsters. Does anyone really do that? Maybe you can just do that in Curse of the Black Dice. Yeah. I mean, I've been playing Devil's Advocate a little bit here just because I like to. And... (laughs) Just to be arguing. Yeah, just to be arguing. To offer a different point of view. But yeah, a lot of what you're saying I do absolutely take on board. But still... There's something about this game, it has a charm to it that, I, that I'm really drawn to. I think that it's got a lot of things right, the Curse of the Black Dice. In fact, a lot of things are set possibly scoring, which is quite an important thing to get right. It could just be too random. But if you play it in the right spirit, with the right group, who are going to enjoy it, who are going to try and play as a team, who are going to embrace the theme and, and take it on board the way it should be played... I think there is fun in this box. I think it's possibly fun for families who aren't going to be too mean. Or just if you have an agreement, like, let's just not ruin the game. We're all here to have fun. Winning isn't the most important thing. Okay? 
But it is a little bit fragile. I do hate that one winner or lose mechanism. I'm not sure it's ever really worked for me. I think with a lot of people that I play games with, they would do that. They would tank it. So, it's just hovering on trap for me. But, as I've said before, if this suits your game group, I think there's a lot to like in the box. They've done a lot of things really well. The exploding dice is a great idea and it could well be a treasure for lots of other people. Right, so for me, it's one of those games I'm really, really drawn to. I like that dice placement mechanic with having to think about more than what you want, but what you're going for and how it might affect you later in the game. I like that there's different rules for each quest, so that's going to add to the longevity of the game. But it does boil down to luck of the draw at those gold pieces. If you get the wrong ones, even if you've played better or done better, you could still lose the game. Yeah, that that mechanism, the one win or all lose, I don't like. Looks striking, looks really good. I really like the look of it. But what the question I had to ask myself was, I like this game. I like the look of this game. But am I actually going to buy it? Am I looking to buy this in essence? And the honest answer is probably not. So it's going to be a, a very slight trap. But again, I echo everything Ronan said. I think there is a lot of merit to this game. So, we've got three games left, and the next of that is Theomachy, the Warrior Gods, although the Ancient Ones is coming out as well. They're the same game system. This is a re-implementation of a Polish game, Theomachia, which came out in 2012. Uh, That one came out with four factions. What they've done with this has been a Kickstarter campaign, but it's coming out for real at Essen. And they've taken the four old factions, split them, and put two new ones with each of the older pair, and released two different box sets. You can choose your theme with this. And they've also put in some slightly revised cards. So who's it from? Well, the original publisher is FGH and there are four designers one of which is Adam Kropinski and he's very much linked to FGH he designed Sigamundus Augustus Heroes First to Fight amongst others two of the other designers are Tomasz Bolina and Jacob Vasilevsky and basically Theomachy is their design and the fourth designer who's come on board since it's been re-implemented is Sandy Peterson and he designed the original Arkham Horror back in 1987 he also designed Cthulhu Wars the massive Kickstarter that came out with those huge crazy models and the primary colours and that came out from his own company Peterson Games who've joined up with FGH to create this, and they're also bringing out Orcs Must Die. So that's quite a complicated little gestation and publishing story behind this, but there you go. What is it? Advertised playing time of 45 minutes. Two to four players. It's a poker-based card conflict game. So how does it work? Well, you're going to choose a pantheon of gods to be, and in Theomachy Warrior Gods, you're going to be either the Celtic, Norse, Slavonic, or Lovecraft, and in the Ancients, you're going to be the Greeks, Babylonian, Egyptians, or different Lovecrafts. There's plenty of Lovecraft here. I think Sandy Peterson likes Lovecraft stuff. And it's going to be based around a poker mechanism. So once you've chosen your pantheon, you get this something called a myth deck, which is cards you're going to be able to purchase and bring into your deck. 
There's going to then be a pre-game draft in which you're going to draft 12 cards but discard down to 8 before you start, which actually that, that's to allow negative drafting before the game and probably works best when you know how to play the game properly. Then once you know what cards you've got, from your pantheon you choose a separate god and they all have separate powers and also separate mandates and mandates are how you get miracles which you can allow to buy the myth cards which are linked to your pantheon. So lots of variety in, in what you do, who you are, how you set up before you start playing the game. Totally based around Texas Hold'em Poker when you get to the gameplay. So what happens? You deal out five element cards and three of them are turned over and that's the flop. And then we have a round of bidding. In this game, you're not bidding money, you're actually bidding followers. And followers come in, in different sorts of, all discs, but they're normal followers, and there's priests, and there's prophets, and they have different effects on different cards during the game, which I hope you'll get an idea of. It's very hard for me to describe because all the cards have different actions and all the gods have different powers. But basically, you read the flop, okay? And the flop is going to come in element cards. And they're going to be able to power cards from your hand or from that deck you drafted earlier. When you look at the flop and the three cards, you think, how likely am I to win any fight here? How, how well does this power the cards I've got in my hand? Am I willing to risk a load of my followers in thinking I can win this battle against however many other players I'm playing against? If you wish to, you bid. And once everyone's matched the current bid, you then turn over the next card People get a chance again to bid their followers into a possible end battle. Also play cards as powered by the elements which have been revealed so far. And finally a fifth card gets turned over. Like the river in poker. And from that fifth card there's a final round of bidding off your followers to say yes. This is how much of my strength of forces I'm going to commit to this final battle. If more than one player is left once all five cards have been revealed and the betting of followers has finished, then you're going to have a final battle. And in that case, you're going to fight warriors against warriors. You're going to be playing cards to try and affect each other's gathering that they've sent into the battle. Now, they don't actually fight. You just use card effects to try and whittle away the pool of followers that each other player has put into this battle. And once everyone has finished playing cards as powered by the five cards in the middle, whoever has the most warriors left is going to win and wipe out the other remaining followers of the other players. How that's going to help you win is when all players are eliminated bar one, that's the end of the game and that is the winning player. Sean. It's an attempt to put theme onto Texas Hold'em Poker. There is a lot going on. Eight different factions, multiple gods, multiple cards, multiple myth decks, lots and lots of variety in the game. How successful do you feel they've been in bringing this theme to a very obviously classic card game system? Well, you got to steal my thunder, hey? My first question was, have they not just stuck a theme and some frills on poker? And... I'm going to answer it. Yeah, I think they have. I don't think that there's anything massively innovative in here. The artwork's nice. I like the look of the game, for sure. But am I going to feel like a Lovecraftian ancient one or a Norse god or an Egyptian god? I doubt it. It's just going to feel like I'm betting money on poker. Oh, I don't know. I think with all the different cards available... They've, yeah, that's where the frills come in. They, there are, they, they've stuck options on top of that and ways that you can manipulate what you're doing. I'm not convinced that they failed in trying to add the theme. That's not so much what my issue would be with it. I think my issue would be 
that when you've got such a classic system as poker, if you're trying to do something with it, you have to improve it. And in this case, obviously, they're making it more convoluted and they're adding to the playing time. Is it worth it? I think that's the key to whether you're going to like Theomachy or not. Do you think it's worth a lot of fuss to add to poker? Yeah, I take on board that. But also, when I'm playing the game, if you're going to add a theme onto something, it's got to be sort of relevant to what you're doing. Am I going to be sitting at that table thinking I'm playing a very pretty game of poker with a few extras? Or am I going to be sitting at that table thinking, yes, I'm committing followers to a battle between ancient gods? probably not from what I'm looking at but absolutely take on board what you're saying yeah it doesn't look like what they are doing actually improves the the classic and brilliant game of poker I think obviously a lot of the interest in poker is going to be the timing of when you commit to something when you think you're going to do well the bluffing clearly and the taking of risks the you know how much how much of my forces am I going to commit? And they're just trying to add a gamely edge to that. You know, <laughs> I don't often play poker for money. You know, and and obviously that's a big risk. But if you don't play for money, poker becomes boring. So how do you add that investment to the game of poker? And their answer is, well, put a theme on it and turn it into a battle. And I think it's going to boil it down to whether you are going to invest in that or not. Also, Ronan, so the English versions are going to have, with Mr. Peterson involved, are going to have two separate boxes. Now, are you likely to buy both of those? Are you likely to choose one or the other, whichever one interests you? And does the theme carry on through the games enough to make that actually even worth considering well both of them going to be exactly the same that's what i'm asking well i would definitely buy the one that avoided the lovecraftian theme yeah good luck (laughs) (laughs) surely there was there was another ancient gods in mythology that we could have had just the one lovecraftian i'm guessing sandy likes a bit of tentacles i don't i can't (laughs) what you want me to say i yeah, there's outer gods and some other kind of... I mean, really, really, come on. Um, yeah, it's a good question. And But you know what? I think I'm thinking more of which one do you choose? And how do you choose? Like, I don't know where I'd start. They've, they seem to have added so much on it, I can't see a starting point for a new player. Yeah, it's, I suppose it just boils down to if you like Norse gods or Egyptian gods or, or Slavonic or you just choose the gods that most interest you, I suppose. I think the final point I can make on it is also their advertising is not great. They've got two thirds of an instructional video on Board Game Geek. The final bit's not there. I don't know what happened to it. Maybe the older gods ate it. There's some confusing terminology in there. Moving on, obviously, from what we said about the two boxes is that it's not new user-friendly from what I can see. But, Sean, final thoughts on Theo, Mackie? So when I first heard about this game, I actually liked the thought of it, this battle of the guards, it's a card game where you've got that central playing area. They always appealed to me. But when I found out it was about poker and based on the game poker, it kind of turned me off the game. I don't really understand the marketing decision with the two separate boxes. It's not going to be for me, but it's an interesting project. So for me, it's a trap. I think for me, Theomachy is ambitious. 
it's probably slightly overwrought. They've tried to do too much at once with it before it's established itself as a hit. But I do want to try it. I want to see how close to achieving their ambition they've got. Is it a must-buy? No. But it is a try, so it's going to be a trap because I think there's too much investment up front right now. That's Theomachy, the Warrior Gods, and or the Ancients, whichever one you choose. Just choose on colour, maybe. I'm going to introduce my final game of this episode, and that is the Post-Human for Mr. B Games. Mr. B designed the Alien Uprising game and Spurs a Tale in the Old West. Designed by Gordon Kaleja, or Kaleja, and it's Gordon's first game. It's one to six players with a whopping 120 to 180 minutes time frame. It is a post-apocalyptic style adventure with a modular board, dice rolling, combat, exploration, and more. The players are going to start off in a future world where mutation has left humans as the minority, and their initial goal is to race to a human safe house before they get killed off or turned into a mutant post-human. Players can either start with preset characters or design their own by assigning 10 points to the stats. The stats are strength, speed, mind, melee and shooting. And there are also health and morale tracks that start differently depending on what level game you start. So the gist of the game is that you are building and exploring your own personal route where you can find supplies, you can be attacked, you can fight off these posthumor or other creatures and so on. Each player has these options on their turn. You can camp, forage, scout and move. On the main board is an encounter track and this is how you progress towards the safe house. In addition to the encounters, there are events that change the game in some way positively or negatively for the players. So the humans are in a race to get to this safe house before the post-humans get to them. But here is the catch. The humans collect scars. Should they collect enough, they may decide to turn into a post-human. And once they reach, I think it's five scars, they have to turn into a post-human. And then the game is going to change for them with new actions and a new win condition. It then becomes a game of humans versus the post-humans. With all the post-humans winning if they stop the humans, but only one human can win by getting to that safe house first. Post-human, Rona. So... This is a strange um, game, Sean. And the first thing I've got that's kind of thrown me off, it's a solitaire group co-op. Because the players are playing on their own modular tiled board. So they're having their own separate journey. Their encounters are private just to them. But somehow you're acting as a group as well at the same time. It's seems a very weird choice that firstly i'm just doing my own journey and then secondly while i'm having my encounters what does everyone else do like, what are you doing while i'm rolling dice and having fights and if there's five of you playing what are the four of you doing while i'm resolving what i have to do it's good and bad here i actually really like the thought that you have your own separate adventure and your own journey you're not all following the same path 
but you're following your own path. So I liken it to you all coming from different parts of the country or the landscape. So you really like that idea, having your own little tableau in front of you with this connecting maze of paths and whatever you but yeah you're absolutely right is is the downtime on this game going to be just massive because of you're playing your own game basically everyone's playing their own little game and it's only on that central board where the encounters are tracked if you like that that's where you're going to commune so yeah interesting game interesting yeah, I mean, it is interesting. They've tried to do a lot of stuff with this game, a lot of stuff, which I think it's hard for us to summarise, but we'll certainly touch on. I love the theme. I really do like this idea, and anyone who's listening will know that you love the idea of a post-apocalyptic or even apocalyptic theme, and it's not just generic and zombies and what have you. You're facing these issues of mutants. In terms of bringing the theme to life, though, this is the next thing I think where well, there's a lot off, and I'm not sure how positive it is. There's an awful lot of icons, Sean. There's a whole page of them, and I didn't find all of them that intuitive when I was looking at them. I absolutely agree. When I was looking at Mistfall, I counted up the icons. I think there was 27 or so of them. There's over 50 in this game, Ronan. Jesus. A lot of them are explained on the cards that you use when you're taking actions, etc., but there's a lot of them that aren't. There's a massive rules overhead in this game. Yes. Uh, Speaking of the witch, do you know what I think is an interesting decision in the rule book? Is that they tell you when you start this to learn the game. You can create characters, but don't do that. Okay. Play with the preset characters, which makes sense. But then they spend page three and four off the rule book explaining character creation, which they told you you're not going to do till you've played it a couple of times. Uh, yeah, but I think a simple skip these two pages would, would have sufficed there. But yeah. I actually found that the rule book wasn't too bad. For a game with such massive rules overhead, and it's going to take you a long time to learn it to the point where you don't have to refer to the rule book, if ever, with all those icons, I actually thought it was laid out quite well, and it was I was able to understand it quite quickly. Yes, okay. No, yeah, I take that point as well. That central board, Sean... Does it does it give you the feel of the theme? Because the theme is a big selling point in this game. The whole look of the game, with like say the Central Board, does, does it give you the feel of of this post-human struggle? Absolutely not. That's my main issue with this game: is the looks of it. It's very uninspiring. I, uh, I know it's supposed to be a bland, apocalyptic landscape, but. Yeah, don't make your game bland and apocalyptic looking. It's quite geometrical, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and even the little tiles that you lay out when you're going on your journey yourself, your own little tableau, they're just, again, boring, uninspiring. There's nothing interesting yeah. about them. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I'm going to I'm gonna take you back to Curse of the Black Dice here. I'm sorry. If it's looking bad for the humans let's say they're not going so well and it is supposed to be quite a tough game if i got to three scars and a few of us got to three scars why wouldn't we just choose to turn because everyone can turn apart from the last human why why wouldn't i just go well well, it's not looking great lads i'm off but could there not be an actual decision in the game to try and get yourself up to three or four scars and make that decision yourself to to go for the post-human 
I think that fits in with the theme of the game. Oh, I don't know. Is it not build a sort of this struggle against the post-humans? Yeah, I mean, but are you going to be brave enough to continue struggling against all the odds? Probably not, in fairness, if it's me. That last human that's left, are they not going to have most of the fun? Because I think it seems to me that the post-human options are slightly more limited and they're not going to get the full feeling of this game whereas everything's against you and that last human player I think is going to have all the excitement and all the stress too but all the fun possibly possibly mm. I'll just bring you on to another thing it's a long old game oh yeah really long old oh, game oh yeah okay yeah the random the fact that when you get scars they can actually help or hinder you. Yeah, they can actually improve your attacks like a big old club arm or they can slow you down. Or I mean, there's so many cards in this game, many, many decks. Every game is going to be definitely different. The fact that skill checks, your skills are going to be rated between 2 and 5. It's just a 1d6 as to whether you pass or not. There's a reason why a lot of games use multiple dice systems because then the random band is, is shrunk towards the centre as opposed to this is truly random when you roll. And also things like then the the item draws, the encounter draws, tile draws, a lot of random going on. Is it all going to balance off or is it going to be too much? What do you think? I think there's things that they have definitely done to mitigate against the random. Things like being able to scout ahead and being able to choose your route and things like that. That's all just trying to offset this random but yeah there, there is going to be a lot of random in there and i, I don't know it's, it's the answer for you i don't know if it's actually going to work but i'm definitely interested enough to give it a go okay to sum up for me on post-human i think it's very ambitious they've tried to make a big game where every game is going to be different and it's an experience I am slightly wary of it, so I'm going to say trap. But should Sean care to buy it, I would be very interested to give it a go and see whether they've got close to fulfilling their grand ambition in post-human. Okay, so usually when a game really doesn't look very good, which this one I don't think does from afar, I kind of go against it but this one has me really really intrigued that twist i've not got anything like it in my games collection having your own little separate route to this safe house that really interests me the role playing aspect of it all your own stats and things like that again things that all sing to me and for me i'm going to say it's a treasure and i'm definitely going to have a look at this one the only problem for me is going to be the rules overhead and whether i'm going to get it to the table if i do end up buying it but i'm going to stick with treasure and that is post-human so this is our final s and preview of 2015 the next time you hear from us it will be from the show itself we would have played some of these games we'll have more pertinent and probably relevant information to give you but stick with us for one more because the last game we're going to cover is guns and steel this is from designer jesse lee who's just had two small games out it's from grail games the publishers of elevens is 101 and too many cinderellas which has been a huge hit in my house this year the advertised playtime is 60 minutes it's for two to four players it is a civilization development game which is billed as a 
deck builder, but it's slightly more a hand management tableau builder sort of a game. It's an interesting card-driven game anyway, in which the cards are two-sided, and on one side they show a development for your civilization, basically a technology from a tech tree, and on the other side, a resource pertinent to the age in which that development is from, and in which you'll be using to build these developments. To set up the game, there is a pyramid of these development cards set up, and there are five ages. There are three cards at the top for the space age, and they go one further coming down for each age you go through down to the bottom there. And there's a wonder available for each age. On your turn, players are going to play one card from their hand with the resource side up, so that's a resource they have available to them. And then they're going to buy a card from the pyramid... And they have costs on them, and the lowest cards are going to have their basic cost. You can buy cards higher up, but if they sit on any cards, it's going to cost you more money. As the pyramid breaks up, there's more freedom in what you can buy, but generally the lower down cards are going to be slightly cheaper for you to be able to purchase. The five wonders which are associated with the ages are they're going to give you big victory points. Now you get victory points for every development that you have at the end of the game and from basically age two onwards they're worth 1.2.3 points, 4 points. But the wonders will also give you points and they all have requirements on them so you have to have a certain number of developments or a certain number of resources or whatever it might be. There are multiple ones for each age depending on what game you're in and they're an auto buy at the end of your turn. If you meet the requirements you will get the wonder. In terms of those actions I'll go back to that you're going to play on your turn, they might give you resources, they might let you flip cards on the table, they might help you to attack each other and steal wonders and have other negative effects on the players around the table. However, there are also such things as response cards, which when you get attacked you can play from your hand to boost your military to prevent your stuff from getting stolen. That's it, Sean. It's a Taiwanese game which has been out. It's been cleaned up and improved somewhat, especially the looks, and brought back out again. It's quite a quick civilization building card game. Any thoughts on guns and steel? Okay, let's start where I usually start with the look of the game. Very abstract, which I don't like. But I do like that clean, stark design quality of of each of the cards very easy to tell what's what and what's where yeah they've improved the looks i think it came out before and it was uh mixed languages on the cards and it didn't look quite so smooth and clean and the graphics while similar weren't probably quite as lovely as they are at the moment so i agree it's got a clean clear look to it it looks like you're going to know what you're doing with these cards yeah it's very distinctive as well i think you'll be able to see across a hall of uh, london on board or wherever and say oh they're playing guns and steel i can see immediately but my my first issue or maybe my only issue is if you're going to play a civilization building game and to me this one doesn't feel like i'm playing a civilization building game so kind of what's the point i don't feel like i'm building up a civilization i just feel like i am managing a hand of cards and getting certain icons into into my hand to do certain things i am going to agree with you oh oh it's a shock <laughs> wasn't expecting and the that way, <laughs> the way i phrase it is i think that there's clever combinations going on in the game i think there's clever ways of managing your hand and i think they're being hidden by the lack of originality in the theme I think people are just going to expect the same old, same old, because it's another card-building, sieve-building game, as opposed to thinking, oh, this could be something different. I think if they had had a more innovative theme on the game, 
people would expect better mechanisms and probably give it another look. And oh, I just think they could have done better, Sean. I really do in terms of theming. Oh, sorry, I'm still reeling from the fact that you agreed with me on something. Well, once per episode. <laughs> is that a contractual <laughs> obligation? Is it? That's what you made me sign. I'm not happy with that. I disagree with right that. Then. There's a lot of attacking in this game, or the chance to attack in this game. Do you think you almost need to attack in this game? I think you probably need to be prepared to be attacked. Don't forget that you're giving up your one action if you are going to attack. I think it's an option to go down. I think the game definitely encourages that form of of interaction. I think it's definitely part of every game. But you can prepare yourself. You can have that deterrent in your hand. If you buy cards which are response cards, people can see that and say, oh, well, you know, they may well have that card in their hand and I'll waste my action if I try and attack them. So... It's like in a lot of Civilization games. I know we played Nations recently. It's a bit of push and pull. If you start going hard military, I may have to respond in some form, but I think the game gives me the ability to mitigate how I respond. Okay, so Ronan, uh, Guns and Steel. Guns and Steel. I really wanted guns to... Guns and Steel. Guns and Steel. Steel and Guns. <laughs> I really wanted to like this one. Even with this abstract feel, it really felt like it was going to be clever and stylish, but I can't really see that there's much substance to it other than a kind of bog-standard hand management game. So it's not for me, but it's definitely one of the... If you were to pick it up in Essen, I would definitely like to give it a few goes, not just one, because I think there's there's avenues to explore here. But for me at the moment, it's a trap. Guns and Steel, the post-human of card games. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think that... I wish they'd chosen a different theme, but I think it's not just a bog-standard hand management game I think it's a very interesting hand management game I think it's interesting what cards you choose to bring in I don't think you're going to get as many cards as in other deck building games therefore what you choose to bring in is going to be vital you're going to have to try and combo up your cards it looks like it's going to reward clever play it hasn't had much feedback yet but a lot of the feedback has been positive and I'm going to drive forward with that and Guns and Steel will be in my basket this is Rare for this episode, a treasure, Guns and Steel. Well, there you go. I think you've got the better end of this bargain. I'm buying the £50 post-human. You're buying Guns and Steel. (laughs) I'll buy the €20 one that takes an hour. You can have the eight-hour game, thanks. Brilliant. Okay, and there we go. That's episode 51 in the bag. And as Ronan said, next time you're going to hear from us is going to be while we are at Essen itself. Ronan, we can be found at Essen if people want to come and meet us. Where's that? All over, Sean. It will be omnipresent. However, specifically, we will be wandering around in Game Pit t-shirts. If you do see anyone in the Game Pit t-shirt, do come up and grab us and hug us and tell us you love us. Or otherwise, I will be on the Dice Tower booth in Hall 7 from midday for an hour or two on Saturday. And we'll have Puria and a couple of our other hopefully contributors with us. We will be at Hotel Bredney on Friday evening. Now, after the mess, we are going to record a quick episode, so it won't be too early. But we'll be there in the, in the later evening onwards. If you're around Hotel Bredney, do pop along. 
pop in, have a look for us. At least one of us will be in our Game Pit t-shirt, so you should be able to point us out. We are super excited. There's only a few days left now. Pre-orders are going in. Suitcases are getting emptied. Baggage allowances are getting checked, aren't they, Sean? (laughs) Don't go there. Someone might not have read the small print in their flights. Never mind. That's a that's a game or two off the budget. Uh, and we're super looking forward to it. We hope we get to meet any of you who are over there. Do come up and say hello. It would be lovely to just speak to you and meet you and shake your hand and say thanks for listening. And as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for the very best in gaming podcast. We are also proud members of 2d6.org for the very best in gaming goodness. You can contact us on thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Twitter account at GamePitPodcast. So come along there, have a look at our tweets, regular as they are. We also have a Facebook page. Love to see you over there. And we do indeed have a guild on board game geek so pop along there and ask us questions start topics we're always happy to to weigh in with our opinions and we are newly members of stitcher so pop along to stitcher and itunes and you can download our episodes there music by e aaron <laughs> 